And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, October 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, echoes from a long-ago war animate this Navy historian. Plus, USAID tightens up its approach to working with overseas religious groups. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, witnesses tell Congress the United States should take a page from Ukraine's military book as it looks to quickly deploy and scale commercial drones. Otherwise, they say the Defense Department's replicator program could miss the mark. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric attended the House Armed Services Subcommittee hearing. She joins me with the details. And Kirsten, let's start with the replicator program itself announced a couple of months ago with a lot of fanfare. Just review for us what that exactly is. Yeah, so it was announced in August, and it's a Defense Department initiative that wants to field cheap commercial drones at scale in the thousands in multiple domains within the next 18 to 24 months. And it's designed to serve as an innovative playbook for the Defense Department. It will use existing funding, programming lines, authorities to increase production and scale delivery of these drones. And I guess this is important as more and more drones are deployed. You can't have a one drone per one person type of operator model. They need these things to work together as a quote-unquote team so one person can control a bunch of them. Is that the basic idea? That's the idea. And the kind of thought is that if there's a lot of drones, it could deter just from a a size standpoint. And, you know, during the hearing, they were talking about that they were primarily focusing on deterring China from Taiwan, particularly, but basically using um, a lot of small, smart and cheap platforms to kind of counteract this. Yes, there's strength in numbers sometimes of small, cheap things as opposed to a bomber you can only afford 25 of or something, I guess. Yeah. And then they were saying that You know, if they lose a drone, it gets hit, that if it's cheap, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're sort of like somewhere between a bullet and a bomber, I guess you could put it. (laughs) And who were some of the witnesses, and what did they specifically tell? This was the House Armed Services Subcommittee. Who were they, and what did they say? Yeah, one witness was Bill Greenwald. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he was saying that the program should be taken out of acquisition and budget bureaucracy and rules. And that it should also use other transaction authorities. Another witness was Brian Clark. He's a fellow at the Hudson Institute. And And he's been a guest on this show several times. Yep. Very nice. He was saying that the replicator program should focus on adaptability and operational innovation, not size, or as DOD was calling it, mass. So we can't just rely on mass alone. Replicator, especially in its first instantiation, which they call Replicator 1, should be aimed at something other than mass. It should be aimed at enabling operational innovation. The witnesses were really concerned about funding coming from other important programs like munitions and the implications that that could have for the department as it's trying to work on Sure. When they announced Replicator, they said they would just find the money within DOD to do that. So that must have gotten people's ears pricked. Like, where is that money going to come from when we're scrounging around for ammo? Yeah, the congressional members also were pointing out that a lot as a concern of theirs. And questions came up about the pace and whether they can deploy this thing quickly, correct? Yeah. The um, subcommittee leader, Mike Gallagher, was really concerned about timing, 
The other witnesses also mentioned that the replicator needs to pick up the pace to innovate and accomplish its goals. And they were one witness was saying that it needed to be agile and deploy quickly. And they pointed to Ukraine as an example of why this is important. Yes, Ukraine has had good luck with their drones or good skill with them. What did the witnesses say are the lessons there for the U.S. military? Kind of an odd reversal. <laughs> the first was speed. So they were saying Ukraine deployed commercial drones quickly, which the U.S. will also need to do to accomplish its goals. Bill Greenwald said that the U.S. should be agile and acquire agile like Ukraine. Brian Clark pointed to how Ukraine is organizing itself to deploy drones in a flexible way, which he said would be important for the U.S. to do as well. Well, I'd say one thing right off the bat is Ukraine's been able to do what they're doing, not through necessarily just mass and throwing a lot of unmanned systems at the Russians, but instead it's how they orchestrate, how they uh, organize themselves, how they use the tactics that the unmanned systems enable, how they employ those tactics in in the field, how they basically sequence their operations. So it's a lot of the kind of operational art is what they're bringing to bear that's actually yielding success rather than just throwing a bunch of you know, mass at the wall and, and hoping that the Russians get overwhelmed. So I think the lesson there is we got to figure out ways to enable our unmanned systems to be employed in a very flexible way that tactical operators can then adjust in the field. And Paul Shar from the Center for New American Security said that Ukraine has been successful with its decentralized acquisition approach, which he said could be beneficial for the U.S. to also use. One of the things that we've seen from an acquisition standpoint, Ukraine do very successfully, is they have a very decentralized approach. They have civilians, you know, sort of like spontaneously working, drone operators, working with industry, working with the military. Um, There's downsides to that. They have a very heterogeneous fleet. So, you know, things like maintenance is hard. But if you're losing them at high volumes and you're focused on replenishing, that's fine. And one of the advantages of what they're doing is um, not only can they then scale through that direction, but they do a lot of experimentation in the technology and then how it's being used um, because they're allowing a lot of freedom among those on the front lines and the developers to try things then figure out what works. And for members of Congress, besides the money, which they should worry about and always do worry about, what were their concerns? Yeah. Also, in addition to timeline, they were talking about that the replicator program and DOD would need to work with the industrial base that for the industrial base that there hasn't been a lot of effort to produce and develop drones in the U.S. and that these parts might be coming from other countries. So they were saying that if DOD wants this to be produced in the U.S., that they would kind of need to show the industrial base that there's you know incentive to produce this here. Yeah, there's a lot being produced in China. The first time I saw a toy drone, not a toy, it flew, I guess it was a drone, an inexpensive drone in 7-Eleven. I said, this is how we know these things are coming from China. If they're cheap enough to sell in (laughs) 7-Eleven, you could sure throw a lot of them at the enemy, but they're made in China. And what else? The Democratic representative Seth Moulton from Massachusetts said that comparing the replicator program to Ukraine and what Ukraine has done for its drones should be one metric to determine replicator success, as well as, you know, timeline funding, how quickly it's deploying everything. If Ukraine's GDP is one one one-hundredth of ours, then we should be a hundred times faster. But be that as it may, let's at least just compare one-to-one how we're doing in terms of speed. I think that would be a great metric for how successful this program is. Was the sense of the hearing at the conclusion that Congress is behind this idea, they just want more detail? 
They want more detail, and the subcommittee leaders want Defense Department leadership to testify on the program. All right, so they are on notice. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, USAID tightens up its approach to working with overseas religious groups. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Agency for International Development works with commercial contractors and nonprofits in countries where it operates. For many years, that's included religious organizations. Now USAID has established a formal policy for religious engagements. We get the details from the acting director of its Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, Amanda Vigneault. Ms. Vigneault, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Well, first of all, tell us what religious organizations do. I mean, give us some examples of the types of countries they're in and what they do for USAID. Well, USAID has been working with local religious communities and faith-based organizations since its inception. So for over 60 years, they've been essential partners in our work in sustainable development and humanitarian assistance in a variety of sectors. That includes food security, strengthening health systems, building climate resistance infrastructure, advancing pluralism. And the policy highlights some concrete examples of the work that we do and how that's advancing the overall mission of USAID. But I think it's important to step back and to talk a little bit about the why, why we've done this work in so many places, why we've done it for so long. And that is in part due to the fact that religious communities, whether they're formal or informal, whether they're global or local, are in every part of the world. So in many of the places where USAID works, we know that religion plays a significant role in daily life. And some countries where USAID has a presence, individuals are reporting high levels of religious commitment, sometimes upwards of 80 or 90%. And that for us is more than just a data point. It's an opportunity for learning. It's an opportunity for engagement. And it's critical to advancing locally led development, both in how we engage with civil society, but also in how we advance our results and our outcomes. The other thing that I think is important to note is that we know, and this is from 60 years of lived experience, that religious communities bring distinct contributions in development and humanitarian assistance, whether that's history and presence, because they've been there often longer than development professionals have been. Their work predates even USAID's existence, but they also bring trust and influence. They have access to reach vulnerable populations that government officials may not. All of those things working together, again, represent opportunities for positive engagement. And that intentionality is critical for us being able to advance our outcomes. It sounds almost as if they can provide moral support for someone laying a concrete pipe because you wouldn't go to a church or a mosque. Probably they don't have the capability of digging ditches and laying pipes or whatever the project might be or fixing up the electrical grid. But for people that may not trust machinery and contractors coming in and this kind of thing, the local religious leader might be able to say, it's okay, it's good money, and it's going to be a good project, so to speak. Well, I think something that we see is a holistic approach. 
And that's distinct in religious communities and faith-based organizations. They are not thinking of one program or one project. They're thinking about the whole community, and they're often thinking about the whole person. And as we think about upholding human dignity, that's a really vital piece of the puzzle. And do these religious organizations, do they get money from USAID for specific tasks, or do you just maybe enlist them as, I don't know, volunteer partners to help alongside with the contractors and work doing nonprofits that are also involved? So it ranges. And strategic religious engagement at USAID is an intentional and it's an evidence-based approach, but we define it as the process of collaborating and partnering with religious communities and faith-based organizations, both globally and locally. And so it could look like making an award to a faith-based organization, but it could look like broader civil society engagement and stakeholder consultations to identify the priorities of individuals and organizations in the community that perhaps we haven't engaged yet. And I would say the last piece of that definition, which is so critical, is the overall goal of our religious engagement efforts is to advance our shared development and humanitarian goals. And that word shared is really intentional. And it's so important because it underscores the principle of mutuality upon which locally led development is predicated. And that has to do with identifying what is common between us so that we can intentionally and jointly pursue this vision of a better world. That's the strategic part. We get the question a lot. What makes it strategic religious engagement? For me, it's a question of how do we work together more effectively, bringing the best of our resources to bear on a particular development or humanitarian challenge. That's more than a meeting, and that's more than a one-off transactional engagement. That's a strategic approach that we apply to doing development in a way that's more inclusive and hopefully more impactful. We are speaking with Amanda Vigno. She is director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And let's get to this new policy that you have for religious engagement. As you mentioned, USAID has been using religious organizations, partnering with them for 60 years. Why a policy now? And what does the policy intend to do here? Absolutely. So USA, like I said, has been engaging faith-based communities for a long time. And when we look back across the decades, we see these moments in recent U.S. history where concrete steps, signposts, so to speak, have signaled to our workforce that this is important, valuable work. So 10 years ago, for example, we saw the release of the 2013 U.S. National Strategy on Religious Leader and Faith Community Engagement. And that strategy called on U.S. government officials to develop and deepen their relationships with religious leaders and faith communities as they carry out their foreign policy responsibilities. And then 20 years ago, we saw the creation of the first White House and subsequently first USAID faith-based office, which was designed to help us institutionally build bridges with faith communities. And so the creation of our office was originally constituted by executive order, but has been reconstituted by every administration since. So going back to February 14th, 2021, President Biden released an executive order that reconstituted the work of our office and specifically called on uh, USAID to enhance our engagement with development and humanitarian practitioners who are in religious communities. And so in many ways, as we look back over the decades, there have been these moments of intentionality, and USAID's new Building Bridges policy really builds upon these moments 
as we endeavor to equip our workforce with the tools and the knowledge to engage religious actors in principle and in practice. But the last thing I want to throw in here, and I think it's really important, is that in addition to this legacy work and these sort of signposts along the way, when we look at USAID right now, the moment we're in, it's really strategic that we've been able to release the policy under the administrator's vision for an agency for inclusive development. When we think about driving progress beyond programs, the agency's localization agenda, its prioritization of inclusive development and DEIA, the diversification of our partner base, strategic religious engagement is part and parcel of all of these efforts. And what happens when a particular religious group might have the total respect of the community there but their practices and beliefs might run crossways from what is accepted cultural practice here in the rich old West, where you know only 5% of the people even set foot in a church anymore, for example. I think part of what's critical, and the policy articulates this, we have to be mindful that the policy was not created in a vacuum. So at USAID, we have the safeguards and the guardrails in place to identify the partner's that are best suited for the jobs on the ground. And so being mindful of that and ensuring that the relationships that we are cultivating over time are done on our part with full respect and inclusivity, but also done in compliance with the legal requirements that we have as an agency is critical to effective development results at the end of the day. Right. So I guess specifically suppose some religious group says, well, women can't do this type of thing. They can only do this kind of thing. You have to make a decision at some point. Well, and I think that's where it comes down to how USAID has been partnering for 60 years. So the strategic religious engagement policy is about enhancing the engagement that we have with community members. But the contracting decisions that we make as an agency are guided by non-discrimination policies. They're guided by principles of inclusive development and how we integrate that across the program cycle. So this is part and parcel of how we think about enhanced community engagement, but it's not prioritizing the beliefs of individual religious communities or faith-based organizations above the guardrails that the agency has already set to ensure best practices in our work around the world. Well, it sounds interesting, and it sounds like there is a good, I guess, statutory basis for this, and now there's a, an executive order reconstituting it, and the policy reading it doesn't look all that prescriptive as far as policies that you generally read in the government. It seems more descriptive than prescriptive. Fair way to put it? There are different types of policies at USAID. So there's strategies, there's policies, there's vision statements. And so this policy is not a list of thou shalls in government speak. It's, it's a commitment on behalf of the agency that articulates how we engage with religious communities. And it's uh, articulating the posture and the principles with which we conduct our engagement. So when we look at the principles, bridges, belonging, respect, inclusion, dignity, growth, equity, and sustainability, this is aligned deeply with the values that USAID has and what we've really shown over 60 years of work in this space. Amanda Vigno is director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to that religious engagement policy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the pressure on Congress is starting to pin the needle on 10. But first, echoes from a long-ago war animate this Navy historian with lessons for today's sailors. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A book by an historian from the Naval History and Heritage Command recalls a bizarre episode from a long-ago war. In the Great Battle for Okinawa in World War II, Japan resorted to suicide missions known as kamikaze. The book's title says it all, On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely, Surviving the Kamikaze Off Okinawa, 1945. Joining me now in studio is author Guy Nasuti. Mr. Nasuti, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And why this book now? I mean, is there anything left about World War II and the naval battles we don't know yet? (laughs) Well, I began this project mostly as a tribute to the sailors that served during World War II, and especially at the Battle of Okinawa. It originally came out of, uh, I wrote about eight articles for the 75th anniversary of the battle. And I wanted to pay tribute to the veterans, to the sailors that died. And I also wanted present-day sailors to just learn more about this incident in their history and take some inspiration from it. And maybe just for the younger listeners, since this is a nation that doesn't treasure its history quite enough sometimes, tell us the significance of the Battle of Okinawa and what exactly kamikaze was all about. Sure. Well, the kamikazes really resulted from Japan's desperation towards the end of the war as the Allied forces were encroaching upon the home islands of Japan. Kamikaze itself means divine wind, and the Japanese didn't really refer to themselves as kamikaze. The divine wind was something taken from uh, Kublai Khan had tried to invade the home islands of Japan back in the 16th century, and that didn't work out too well. His fleet was pretty much wiped out on two separate occasions by some typhoons. So to the Japanese, that became a very important aspect of their own history. The Japanese actually referred to uh, the kamikazes. They, they were organized into what became the Special Attack Corps. They actually referred to themselves as Tokotai, or just Toko. And the Battle of Okinawa itself became probably the fiercest battle of the war up until that time. And there were 10 separate operations that the kamikazes were involved in, flying hundreds of aircraft trying to fly into U.S. ships. And really, their whole goal was to destroy as many ships as as they could and get the United States to the bargaining table. Right. So the idea was these planes knew when they took off that their job was to crash the plane and themselves thereby into the funnel or into some part of the ship. So they were literally suicide missions intended that way. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I guess probably was the United States prepared, and what was the point of view from the ships to see such an astounding way of conducting warfare? Right. Well, the kamikazes had actually began in late October 1944 during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. The first ship sunk was the USS St. Lowe, which was an escort carrier at the Battle off Samar on October 25th of that year. So the Japanese 
had at first really sort of it was kind of a one aircraft two aircraft at a time kind of thing it was at okinawa that you really see an organization several kamikazes at a time attacking the fleet and some of the smaller ships at the radar picket stations just were a ring around the island of okinawa and mostly manned by smaller ships such as destroyers and destroyer escorts we're speaking with Guy Nasuti. He's an historian at the Naval History and Heritage Command and author of On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely. Explain that title for us. So that's a quote from a damage control officer, Lieutenant Bly, Raymond Bly. Um, of all names. Yeah, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, strangely enough. He was on board the USS Longshaw, which was a destroyer. Strangely enough, the Longshaw was not sunk by a kamikaze. What happened, though, was the ship had basically uh, beached itself on a reef, hit a reef, and got stuck. So while some of the men were trying to move ammunition forward of the ship and another ship was coming to their aid, they came under fire by a Japanese gun emplacement on the shore. And the Japanese weapon was sending shells into the ship and uh, killed several American sailors, and the ship eventually had to be scuttled and survivors picked up by some other ships. So when the after-action report came out, Bly was actually the senior surviving officer of the ship, and he had been the guy on watch, actually, when the ship hit the reef. So you could argue maybe he was trying to cover himself, but uh, what happened was he, in an addendum to the after-action report, he wrote something that basically blamed cruise exhaustion and everything that they had dealt with up to that time with the kamikazes, constantly being on alert, constantly being on guard, being at general quarters for hours at a time. And he wrote basically the, the entire cruise on the verge of breaking down completely. Wow. And what were your sources for this book? Did you have some original logs and diaries and that kind of thing? Yeah, mostly um, I used after-action reports, war diaries. I used a lot of veteran History interviews from the Library of Congress has a great project called the Veterans History Project, and I would go online. This was all done during the pandemic. So I was working from home. I didn't have access to the archives, either National Archives or our archives at NHHC. So a lot of this was done just via my laptop at home. So I was uh, looking at the veteran interviews, looking for great quotes, and, and a lot of those are just great. You know, those little guys really can tell a great story. Uh, so there Are there any of... survivors of that battle available? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Still? Still. Not too many, unfortunately, but they're out there. All right. And in the larger sense, speaking as an historian of, mm -hmm. of naval history and so on, war doctrine, are there any lessons learned for contemporary sailors from the incident of the kamikaze in such a desperate battle where the losses were probably in that day more than, you know, all the losses ever in the past 20 years or something. Sure. There were actually more American sailors killed on board ships off Okinawa than there were Army soldiers or Marines killed on land at the time. Some 5,000 sailors killed and about the same number wounded. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. It was really a lot for them to overcome. They had to adapt tactics quickly and often because the Japanese were constantly changing up their tactics. They started attacking at night instead of just in the morning. They were flying in from low levels just over the ocean surface. You know, they would attack 
sort of coordinate and attack at different directions. And some would fly in and then come up over the ship and, and come straight down. A lot of the kamikazes carried bombs, so they were really trying to just maximize what damage they could create. So the Navy really had to be up to snuff on damage control training, firefighting efforts, their medical triaging, and sending uh, the horribly wounded and burned off ship as quickly as possible. And I think those are all lessons that our Navy today could take to heart and, and just keep in mind as they go about their own training for the future. Yeah, particularly relevant as we have two carriers now that are in potential harm's way in the Middle East. So you have sure. to be prepared then to triage and yeah. to well, uh, I mean, adapt. You're, you're always in harm's way when when you're out on deployment. Living on a Navy ship is dangerous just constantly. So you have to be aware. You have to be on your toes. You just keep doing your training and you'll be okay. Guy Nasuti is an historian of the Naval History and Heritage Command. He's also author of On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely, Surviving the Kamikaze off Okinawa in 1945. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the book at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the pressure on Congress is starting to pin the needle on 10. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Congress has something new and critical to deal with every week, it seems. However, it deals with the budget, the need to authorize a few agencies like the Defense Department, or with the White House request for foreign military aid, it needs both chambers to be functioning. We get the latest now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, the only thing I can think of with these votes happening for Jim Jordan is the old Paul Simon song. The nearer your destination, the more you keep slip sliding away. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately for Jim Jordan, he keeps slip sliding away. And it's really just an unprecedented situation you have here where you have a political party unable to change choose its own leader. There's just no one within the Republican Party right now that can get 217 votes. And it's just brought paralysis to the U.S. House of Representatives. And of course, that means implications for all kinds of things across government. And right now, there are a lot of people really, really worried about the institution. There must be some emergency way if they, for example, wanted to take up legislation that the president requested last week, which is more than $100 billion in continued foreign military aid. There's got to be a way with a temporary speaker or pro tempore speaker. Can they vote on that if they have to? Well, it's really interesting that you ask that because this was a big part of the argument this past week, and it, it continues to be one. And basically, the situation is that a lot of people have said, why can't you make House Speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry, who was brought in after the ouster of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, kind of an ally of McCarthy, brought in and essentially was a caretaker, a lot of people thought, gavels in the House and then, of course, gavels it into recess. But many people, including Kevin McCarthy, 
McCarthy himself have said that after 9-11, that there really was no need to pass specific legislation to give some powers to this pro tem. But there are sharp disagreements, even among scholars and parliamentarians, about that point of view. Some people say that it might even be unconstitutional to give the pro tem more power. Now, interestingly, Patrick McHenry himself is an institutionalist. And even though there were a lot of people last week that wanted him to become this caretaker uh, speaker, he himself has been really reticent to move into that mode. But a lot of people say, look, if the Republican Party can't agree on anyone, surely we must, as you point out, do something so that some legislation or some emergency action can be taken. So there's a real back and forth over this. And this was actually what caused a revolt last week against Jim Jordan. He was ready to do this. He was ready to allow this to happen. But a lot of the hardliners within the Republican Party said absolutely not. They were viscerally opposed to this. They thought it was basically a variety of things. Some of them thought it was giving over power to the Democrats in some way by making a compromised government. Others had these legal arguments. So it's a very, very interesting thing, even though it might seem arcane on the surface. It's something that goes right to the core of what the House can or cannot do. And have you noticed or witnessed or maybe just monitored any international reaction to this? Because it must make us look like a little bit of a laughingstock, I think, in some places. You know, it's really interesting. There is a large amount of people around the world looking at this. In fact, it was reported last week that even during President Biden's visit, short as it was to Israel, he was asked about this by Israeli officials. They said, what is going on with this part of your U.S. government? So they are very, very aware of what's happening. And it's really a sore point for many of the Republicans that work on committees such as foreign affairs, like the chair, uh, Michael McCall, and intelligence. A lot of these people have said very openly that they think that this is making the U.S. look like a laughingstock to the rest of the world. You know, as Michael McCall said, the world is burning, literally, and we are not doing anything about it. You've had weeks without a House speaker, even as these major crises have been unfolding, obviously, Israel and Hamas and earlier Ukraine, but that is still going on now. And they just really are pulling their hair out, frankly. There's been a lot of tension within the Republican conference, probably more so than ever before. These closed-door meetings, they call them family meetings. Boy, this is a dysfunctional family right now. (laughs) Yes, the whips are out. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And besides the world burning, the government itself is inching ever closer. It's like the tied-up damsel going down the proverbial saw mill. The blade gets closer and closer to the federal shutdown date of November 17th and the National Defense Authorization Act. Right, which is usually a no-brainer. Everybody thought that that was going to pass very quickly, and now that is stuck. So you have all these issues related to the military, not to mention the fact that we do have this international crisis going on, and then that big buzzsaw is just getting closer and closer. It's hard to believe that it's actually within weeks now that that November 17th government shutdown deadline is approaching, and it seemed like such a long time ago when they finally got through it, but ironically, it was the agreement between Democrats and Republicans to compromise on that that kicked essentially Kevin McCarthy out of the post of House Speaker. And now you've had really what is chaos and a crisis in the U.S. House of Representatives because there is absolutely no legislation that can move forward. Of course, a lot of House Republicans were talking about they were going to take up all these individual appropriations bills over the last few weeks. Well, obviously, those weeks are totally gone now. They are lost. There's no more time for that. And then there's just the question of what's going to happen as we get closer to the deadline. Are we still going 
going to be in this limbo? Are we going to know who is actually the titular head of the Republican Party in the U.S. House? And that has obviously a lot of implications for what's going to happen with this shutdown. I think there is a resignation among many lawmakers, at least right now, that a shutdown may be coming. All right. And you also spoke to Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, getting back to the White House aid package. What are some of the Senate Democrat majority parties thinking about that? Well, the Democrats and the Senate in general have just tried to keep their head down and keep working. And so they are pushing ahead with a variety of things in connection with aid to Israel. And then Senator Kane, I asked him about this huge supplemental request that's coming out from the White House, over $100 billion, which, of course, includes billions of dollars for Israel, as well as Ukraine, as well as the southern border, which has been a big push by the Republicans. He does believe that eventually some form of that supplemental will get through. Congress. Now, obviously, he's well aware of what's happening on the other side of the Capitol, but he says that basically it's the Senate that has to take the ball here and really make sure that it starts moving on this and getting it through Congress. And so Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Friday again reiterated that point and said the Senate is going to keep pushing ahead, trying to at least get things in place so that at some point, whenever the House gets its act together, that this can actually be passed. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that it's going to roll right through. As we've talked about before, there are many House Republicans who have a lot of reservations about more aid to Ukraine, and they don't like the idea of Ukraine and Israel aid being tied together. But we'll have to see what happens there, because right now we just have a power vacuum here in the U.S. House. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Pay bonuses for the last few years were something of a lifeboat for correctional officers at the Thompson Federal Prison in Illinois. But after some stabilizing of the staff numbers, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is opting not to renew the pay-based retention incentive at that facility. Well, now the federal union representing Thompson correctional officers is urging BOP to keep the incentive going into 2024 and beyond that. Without it, they say, there could be an exodus of officers at the already massively struggling facility. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And just tell us a little bit about what's going on at Thompson. It is a very troubled facility with violence and horrible incidents happening between inmates and also involving correctional officers. Uh, Why is this change happening and what are they justifying it with? Absolutely, Tom. There are a lot of very complicated issues going on at Thompson currently. So what happened was back in 2021, correctional officers at that facility were approved for a 25% retention incentive from the Office of Personnel Management. This was to try to prevent further staff attrition at the facility. And generally, BOP does have a couple of these incentives for other facilities as well. But for specifically at Thompson, the uh, incentive now is going to be removed at the end of the calendar year. So it's currently in place, but it will expire on December 31st. I spoke with a BOP official and they didn't specify why it's terminating, but notably there were some signs at least that maybe the staffing numbers were increasing according to testimony from BOP Director Colette Peters in 2022. But in the meantime, the American Federation of Government Employees and a lot of the officers are saying that's not how you know the situation is on the ground. These staffing issues are actually pretty significant, and w- they're worried that without maintaining that incentive, it's just going to worsen the attrition. Yeah, strange approach 
to take away the thing that's causing the situation to improve. And so let's stop doing that. I'm not the way I would manage. And what does the union say will happen, that they'll go back to high attrition and so forth? Exactly. The upcoming loss of that incentive will pretty likely cause a surge of staff attrition. That is what the union is quite worried about right now. They've heard from many officers at Thompson saying that they would plan to leave if the incentive isn't renewed. Signs are already starting to point that way, according to John Zumker, president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents about 450 correctional officers total at Thompson. We had 147 staff at Thompson email us and saying, hey, if they remove this retention, I am 100% leave. And we're seeing that right now. We had two staff quit this week. In December, our projected staffing is going to be around 87%. And keep in mind, that's with the retention in place. That's not the retention gone. Once that retention goes, it's going to open up a giant abyss. The Bureau's numbers show that we're losing staff. Yeah, so what is the BOP's rationale here? Is there a legal requirement they cite, or they just don't feel like paying it anymore? So it's not clear. The BOP official that I was able to get in touch with didn't specify exactly why this incentive is expiring, but generally when you look at the legal requirements for how retention incentives operate in government, agencies can get approval from the Office of Personnel Management when there's particularly difficult situations for recruiting and retaining staff. Of course, this was the situation at Thompson. That incentive, the payment is made either in installments or in a lump sum. It kind of depends. But the incentives have to be reviewed by the agency at least once a year to decide if they're still needed. After they review it, then the agency officials have to, under law, terminate the retention incentive when conditions that warranted that incentive in the first place no longer apply. So it seems likely that that's the case. They didn't specify exactly why they believe this no longer applies, but that's basically what's going to happen at the end of this year. And of course, you have the union in the meantime, with just a couple of months left for that incentive, saying, please actually do renew this. And what about the factors that make retention so difficult? I mean, the bonus might keep people there because of those factors, but it sounds like the factors are still in place. Part of it is the location of the Thompson facility. When I spoke with the AFGE local president, he said that it is a very remote area. It's in rural northwest Illinois. That's just the setting of the scene is is very difficult for some of these staff members to be convinced to stay. As you mentioned at the, the top of our conversation, Tom Thompson's special management unit also closed earlier this year, and they're converting to the facility to a lower security institution. So there are a lot of changes internally happening at this specific facility. BOP officials said that the reason that they're converting it is in part because there were so many issues going on, and also because they hope that this will reduce the need for overtime, hopefully reduce staff burnout. But Zemker, the AFGE official, said that the problems are actually made difficult by even other factors as well. We're the newest institution in the Federal Bureau of Prison, and we are in remote location, desirability work here because of lack of child care, the lack of schools, the factories, you know, pay more, the state of Illinois prisons pay more. So you're not giving us a chance to succeed because most prisons, you know, been around for 20, 30, 40 years. They have a base, a foundation. We don't have that. Right. And these challenges, though, are not necessarily unique to Thompson. There's lots of rurally based prisons in the BOP system. And as my series earlier this year elucidated, the BOP got the worst place to work rating in the federal government. So what's going on generally at BOP since that since those ratings came out? 
Tom, you do see a lot of staffing issues, not just at Thompson, but all of their the facilities for the Bureau of Prisons nationwide. On average, according to AFGE, at least there's about they're at about 60 percent staffing capacity overall. So that means there's a lot of people where there's there's positions simply just not filled. That, of course, leads to things like overtime, burnout. It also leads there was an inspector general report earlier this year that found that the lack of staff leads to the inability for the the agency to investigate cases of misconduct by employees. They also have issues where they don't understand how many stuff they actually need to make these requests to Congress or whoever else, their other stakeholders. So there's just a lot of very complicated issues that are contributing to this really significant staff attrition and, and staffing gaps at BOP. And in contrast to Thompson, who is going to see the end of this retention incentive at the end of the year. There have been a handful of other BOP facilities that are going to start getting retention incentives. So it seems like BOP is, the agency as a whole, is picking the areas where maybe the attrition is most telling and and trying to fix the problems there. But recently, I also spoke to Brandy Moore-White, who is the national president of AFGE Council 33, And she talked more about why these incentives aren't necessarily the end of the road for BOP's improvements. I will be brutally honest. Um, I think they're Band-Aids. The Bureau is severely understaffed. We are having massive problems um, recruiting and retaining. And so while we absolutely support um, anything (laughs) that is positive, um, because it is very beneficial to our members in the field. We absolutely need more help. And that's Brandy Moore, National President of AFGE Council 33. And she absolutely says they need more help. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.